You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. Each episode of our show folds a different corner of life in Brooklyn and delivers stories, sounds, and scenery from the people and places that make it home. And until we come undone, we'll be looking both ways before crossing the intersection of the polis and the pathogen on a corner we've been calling 1920. Today it's May 9th, and they told us it'd be snowing. The species that survives is the one that's able to adapt to and to adjust best to the changing environment in which it finds itself. Or so says Charles Darwin and the origin of species. And as the human race grapples with its own termination, we're transforming, pivoting, finding and inventing new ways to hang on for dear life. So this week, we're learning how to get along. First, we veer off into the weeds and dig around for dinner. Then, we fight and fight for our life and live to tell the tale. Next, we connect with the help that we need in a way we may not have considered. Then we look back to a place and a time that looked a little something like this. Then we wonder, when the well is dry, whose life is deemed worth the water. Next, we go up north to find out what really goes into getting things where they're going. Then, we are held and cleansed and healed and schooled in our ancestral divinity. And as always, next, then, and finally, we remember to check the weather. And while we're wishing for the best and praying we're all blessed, we're adapting for no stress and lots of happiness. Keep on surviving in Brooklyn, USA. Here we are, Prospect Park, Brooklyn's backyard, and we're going to do a little forging. So garlic wart is the first thing that I identified with the help of my um, foraging guidebook by wildman Steve Brill. Garlic wart just grows in these stalks with a white flower on top and it's got these leaves kind of I don't know almost like maple leaf looking leaves branching off and the leaves are good in salad. I think you can also harvest the seeds to make kind of like a mustard seed type seasoning. It's got this kind of very subtle, mild, mustardy, garlicky flavor that you probably wouldn't want a whole salad based on, but makes a nice compliment to say dandelion greens or some other forage greens. Mmm, that's good. Just a subtle little kick to it, not too much. Yeah, it's pretty fun foraging. This is a very new thing for me. I just gotten into it this spring. 
think not coincidental with the COVID outbreak. I guess it's nice just to know that in a time of crisis, you can go out and live off the land a little bit. Not that I'm gonna survive off of just garlic wort, but I don't know, just kind of get reconnected. Human beings are, as a species, about 200,000 years old. And for most of those 200,000 years, we lived as hunter-gatherers. Up until the agricultural revolution 12,000 years ago, when we started settling down and farming. So, that means uh, for whatever that is, 188,000 years of our existence, roughly, we were foragers. So it means we still have the brains of foragers. So, getting in touch with that a little bit. Ooh, what, a cop driving by? Play cool, play cool. That was a close one. I think foraging is technically legal now, or not uh, enforced against, but uh, the author of my foraging book, Wild Man Steve Brill, did get arrested once for eating a dandelion in Central Park. I think helped him make a bit of a name for himself. But yeah, there's something about just, you know, eating the landscape around you that I love. As a Brooklyn resident, a city resident, you come to really value the green spaces that you access. And yeah, I don't know, when you're able to actually eat those parks, they become a part of you. You're literally getting nourished by your local nature. All right, I got a nice big stack of garlic wort now. Now, as I was picking the garlic wort, I noticed a few tempting looking wild garlics. So this, uh, the wild garlic it just looks like it's like these thick green stalks that stick out of the ground, but you really want to get the bulb out. Ooh, yeah, okay. Oh, there it goes. That's the main one. It basically just looks like a spring onion once you pull it out. These have a, have a real subtle garlicky oniony, I think almost kind of a nutty taste to them. So you can kind of chop them up and use them as a garnish or stir fry them. I started noticing them in March. It's actually what got me interested in the foraging. They look like chives. I thought they were chives, but I, I think chives um, don't have a bulb. 
It really is like a treasure hunt, you know. Yeah, so I mean, that basically just looks like a bunch of green onions that one would buy from their local farmer's market. So yeah, I don't know, this, this year, 2020, kind of marks the beginning of my foraging adventure. Hopefully in future years, I'll add a couple more IDs here and there. And before I know it, I'll just uh, be eating everything around me. My name is Mavis Kwama. I'm 47. I live in Brooklyn, New York. I'm a mom of eight. I've been a correction officer about five years at the death row. I came to New York and now I'm working for a private facility. Yeah, when I first thought, um, when I first heard about the coronavirus, you know, I watched the news a lot. I thought it was a distraction of what's really going on in the world. So they just threw this out when the impeachment was going on with Trump. What really got me aware is I got a late night text from one of my buddies that's in the military trying to tell me what was going on. They're gonna shut the city down soon. It's gonna be a shortage of food. It's gonna be a shortage of water. You better go stock up on your supplies. Just make sure you got yourself prepared. Then I started doing my research, going on the internet, started taking it real serious. So I'll get up early in the morning. I sent out a mass text to all of my kids. And I was like, listen, you better wash your clothes for the next two weeks. This is going to be real. I'm going to the grocery store to stock up on food. I'm getting some water. I'm going to get some toilet tissue. I'm going to do all of that. The next day I went back to the store. It looked like a movie. Nothing. No water, no tissue, no dish detergent, no soap, no cleaning supplies, no bleach, no nothing. It's like somebody told them, you better get your stuff now. So I felt kind of good because I was like ahead of the wave that was going to happen. So I knew I was ready. The week before the week of the 20th, when they were shutting the school down, I started feeling like I was coming down with something. Because two weeks before, my daughter had a roll back hole. Over the weekend, I was just sleeping a lot. And I was getting hot. So I was like, you know, up in age, menopause, something, I don't know. Maybe I got this headache because my pressure is up a little bit. So I started to take some Motrin. I started getting dehydrated, but I was just like too tired to drink like a whole water. So I'm just taking sips and sips and sips. Monday or that Tuesday, I really started feeling it. I woke up in a sweat and my whole body was aching. And kids, they noticed it probably about Wednesday, Thursday. 
I was so dehydrated, the skin on my lips was peeling. It hurt so bad, I started putting some Vaseline on it, hoping that that would help. And I just kept sleeping, and it just hit me. I was around someone that had told me they was going to get tested, and <clears throat> I was in close proximity of them. You know what? If they're going to get tested, I'm like, something is really, really wrong here. I'm going to go to the doctor. All the doctor offices was not accepting anybody. You call them on the telephone, you tell them what's wrong with you, and they send you a prescription. Having fevers over 102, some 103, and I, I, I couldn't take it. My body was like in so much pain. It's like you're so hot till you feel like you're burning. And then all of a sudden you get cold. You're sweating like that, you want to go take a bath. And I couldn't even make it to the bathroom. I had to call one of my daughters to come to help me go to the bathroom and to wash me. Then I said, you know what? Time to go to the hospital. At this time, everything shut down in New York. I rocked it out maybe for about a week. I called 911 and spoke to an operator. She sends me to another unit, to another unit, and to another unit and talk about a virtual doctor. I thought that was going to be in the way future, but I guess the future was now. I'm on the phone and I'm waiting chest is feeling heavy. I'm feeling like I can't breathe. I'm all upset. My anxiety is kicking in and I've been waiting for 90 minutes. So with that being said, the next best thing was for me to call Uber. When I get to the hospital, it took like maybe 30, 35 minutes to get to the back. You have people sitting next to you and I guess they take the ones that are in critical condition. I was coughing so hard that I could not even breathe because I was wheezing and they put me in a room and they decided that they was going to send me to do an x-ray. I'm not even thinking the worst. I just, all I want to do is just feel good again. The x-ray came back, the doctors came in the room and they said, Miss Palmer, you have majority of symptoms of COVID-19. And also, both of your lungs are infected with pneumonia. You, are you for real? Yes, we're very serious. What am I supposed to do? You know, am I staying here tonight? Am I going home? I got to call my kids to let them know what's going on. Oh, no, you're not going to stay here. Take this. You have to quarantine yourself for 14 days. If you have any problems breathing, feel free to come back. I was at the hospital for seven hours. That's when it really kicked in. That second week almost killed me. The second week is when I started losing my appetite, losing my sense of smell, losing my sense of taste, and got very dehydrated. It was to the point where I was just trying to medicate myself to go to sleep because being awake was a nightmare. You know, I would just lay down on the bed and just look at the ceiling. I wouldn't even talk or say nothing. You get to the point where your anxiety kicks in and your mind starts playing tricks with you. So I was in the bed and I was laying down. I wanted to get somebody attention because my apartment is upstairs, downstairs. And I stayed away from the kids. It's like I was like this prisoner in my room. They're dropping stuff off and running back out. 
I didn't want them to get infected. So every time I go out the room, I spray a Lysol. Like I was the one in jail. I don't care how much money that you have, health is wealth. I wouldn't wish my situation on anybody because my situation is not a normal situation. You know, I have all my eight children here. They're grown, majority of them. The two younger ones is between 14 and 16. So, you know, I didn't have no babies, which is good, but you still have to be cautious because I was dealing with the unknown. The day after, the president and the mayor was like, you are not allowed to be in the hospital unless it is critical. If you anything outside of that, you have to go home and quarantine for 14 days. I'm really feeling like I can't breathe now. I need to go back to the hospital. This time, <coughs> I called the Uber first. I get to the hospital. I prepare the kids. Listen, I think they might gonna have to keep me. I'll call you and I'll let you know. So I get to the hospital. This time, they meet you in the lobby with a whole hazmat suit on. So she comes over to me. Miss Palmer, I'm going to check you next. Follow me, please. And she checks my oxygen. Oh, you're okay. I need to see the doctor because I cannot breathe. We're not taking anyone whose oxygen level is under 89. Your levels are okay, ma'am. I just took a cab over here. I need to see the doctor. I did my chest x-rays here. I was seen here by the doctor. <coughs> and I was diagnosed. And now I know I have the full coronavirus. Well, I'm sorry. We can't see you. That is the most hurtful thing when you're trying to get help and you don't get the help that you think you deserve. I'm a taxpayer. And I just felt so small. I had to call the Uber to come back to get me. So I get in the Uber, crying and stuff, because I'm so angry. Like, you know, I need to I need to see the doctor. So <clears throat> the good thing the nurse told me to do was call your primary doctor. She can give you an antibiotic. I called her. I'm in the third week of this. I was taking Motrin for seven days straight. I waited a week to go to the hospital. When I get there, diagnosed with pneumonia in both of my lungs. And I'm on a heavy antibiotic because of the fact that virtual doctor, they can't physically check me. So she's going off of what the ER said and she gives me a heavy antibiotic. She said, because they should have gave me that in the beginning. So now I'm playing catch up in the fourth week. I'm on an antibiotic, I'm taking it and everything like that. And then I start getting nauseated. So then they had to put me on a cough medicine, which is called Finnegan, to keep my stomach calm. So it's like I'm getting it from all ends. It's like you can't win. I finally start feeling a little better to try and go outside. Man, let me tell you about that. You know how you wake up and you think you have all this super strength and you can do everything because you start feeling better and, you know, your mind is telling you you're good and stuff like that? If your mind and your body don't align, it's not working out. I didn't even get to the hallway. <laughs> and I told myself, I cannot do it. I was like, nope. Mm -mm. I went right back to my bed and laid down in my bed. And I was like, you know what? You got to take it easy. You can't just wake up from 
fighting something like this for like four or five weeks and thinking that you okay just to, you know, go outside. I'm laying down in the bed and I get to that point where now my emotions start working on me. You know, starting to cry. It's like, God help me. God save me. You know, the why me? How could this happen? Who gave this to me? You know, all the things that were run through your mind. I was a good person. Like, what did I do? God, I know this could not be the end. You know, I had to take that time to self-reflect on what was, what could, what should, what is, what's not. And I had to really sit there and reflect. Reflect on myself. When you're going through things, that's when you're like, Oh God, if you get me out of this, I'm going to be a better mom. I'm going to be a better this. I'm going to be a better that. But my final thoughts, I'm still going through. Just as of last week, this right here situation is like trial and error. You don't know where you get it, but when it gets you, it gets you. Because see, I was back in the emergency room and I seen people and I heard people coughing and I can't even imagine being at a hospital and I'm on my last leg and I have nobody to advocate for me. People were checking in, but they weren't checking out. Nobody wants to die alone if you had a choice. I told my son, I said, you know what, Carell? I said, when I get better, I really want to give a testimony of my situation. Because what's not being said in the news is how these people are surviving they're not even talking about the anxiety that you go through. I'm very paranoid when I go out. I wear two masks, gloves, somebody talk. I try to stay away from them because you don't know if you can get it again. So it leaves you paranoid of what is next. Because I don't know the next wave that they say is coming. I don't even know if I'm going to be able to survive it. So my blueprint now is vitamins, 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 vitamins. And hopefully, <laughs> that's going to save me. So, I've been taking zinc, vitamin C, ginger, turmeric tea, and taking iron pills. And I've been inhaling steam. First, in the beginning, when I got it, I didn't want to do the, the tea every 20 minutes. But I realized that's what you need to do. But now, I'm just trying to get my strength back mentally and physically. And... When I went to the doctor, I'm still wheezing in my chest. I'm on an asthma pump that I take when I feel like I cannot breathe. And I still have pneumonia in my lungs because they said it lasts sometimes up to an extra four to six weeks, sometimes even longer. So I can't even take another x-ray probably until the ending of next month just to make sure that it's gone. So it's been a journey. I wouldn't wish this on my enemy. As a mom, you start to worry, you know, like what's going on in the household. While I was in the bed and I was laying down, going through all of this physically, mentally, emotionally, I had to solely depend on the children to do everything. And I just felt, I failed them because I did everything right. I went and got the water, went to Dollar Tree and bought 20 packs of tissue, we went to the bank just in case to have some, you know, cash on hand in the house. I gave the instructions of what to do and how to do it. 
So I thought that we was going to be good. I was like, all right, this is what it is. They're going to shut the city down. We got all the food. We got this. We got that. Some got the calls where they had to work from home and everything. I was like, it's going to be like when they was little kids. The funny thing is they took care of me like I was the little kid. I want to thank everybody for listening to my story and my testimony. And I just want to let you know that the coronavirus is really, really real. It's taking people out for real. And we're in our last days and tomorrow is not even promised. COVID-19, it's understandable that many Americans may experience heightened stress or anxiety affecting our thoughts and emotions. Anyone can become overwhelmed. Remember, there is hope. We can get through this together. Produced by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services at taxpayer expense. While the respiratory illness brought on by the coronavirus is the prevailing focus of public health, lurking behind it is a mental health crisis, threatening a kind of destruction that's not cured in a lab. In a pre-COVID America, one in five adults reported suffering from mental illness, with less than half of them receiving treatment, and anxiety and depression ranking highest amongst their diagnoses. But by the end of April, in the height of the pandemic, over half of polled adults in the United States reported that worry and stress related to the outbreak was affecting their mental health and well-being in various ways. It shows up when they're sleeping, or trying to, eating, or can't, in headaches and stomach aches, and the use of drugs and alcohol. There's plenty to be worried about, and we're doing it in droves. A few days from now, the National Institute of Mental Health is set to begin a clinical study on the impact of the environmental stressors imposed by the pandemic and how that impact will be felt over time. It will conclude two years from now in 2022, and like most things these days, will be conducted online. And though time has turned elastic in the last few weeks and months, two years still sounds like a long time to wait to find out how we're feeling. So this week, we had two conversations with two Brooklyn locals on opposite sides of mental health care provision about how they experienced the last few months, their unique relationships to psychotherapy, and how the COVID crisis has transformed both. My name is Aaron. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and a psychotherapist at a non-for-profit health center. We do have a therapist on site each day of the week, but I am not one of those therapists. My name is Sonia Gotti. I'm a filmmaker living in Brooklyn, New York. I went to therapy for the first time when I was in college and I was starting to have 
problems. There's a, a lot of ways where working from home really does affect my practice. Many of my clients do have privacy in their homes and security and safety, but for many of them, they may not have a private space. So that really affects sometimes their ability to kind of feel comfortable or safe enough to be in a vulnerable space. It can be really intense the first time you go to in-person therapy and it feels like you're excavating your past, kind of digging into it, and maybe you have like a lifetime of stuff stored up. It's a lot. Of course, the other thing as a therapist or any kind of healthcare provider is that so much of what we rely on is visual information, right? The, the look on someone's face, their body movements, and everything you can get from being in the room with someone. I did do really important work then, just having that space, but I still wasn't looking at mental health as something that is a daily upkeep, unless like shit gets really bad and scary, and then, you know, it's like an emergency measure. So it's funny because obviously we're talking about COVID and mental health. For many, many people, this situation is a series of large and very difficult adjustments, to put it mildly. But many clients whose issues are that they tend to isolate and stay home, certainly they're still feeling the stress and anxiety of this situation, but they haven't had to make too many changes in their day-to-day -day routine. And so actually getting to work with them in that home sometimes can even help us I sort of let my whole life get very chaotic. And as an artist, that can happen kind of easily, I think, because a creative practice is so unpredictable and up and down. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a creative and knows a lot about mental health. And I was talking to her about how I felt. And she was like, get therapy. And I was like, I'm intimidated. I don't feel like doing it. I don't, ha I don't want to spend the money. I don't want to have to go there in person. And she was like, girl, just do it online. I had tried to do um, this kind of like subsidized therapy, but honestly, it was just not working for me. One of the complaints I hear the most from our clients are just all the different ways that, you know, this for-profit system and, and the complexities that come with that really impact their ability to take care of their mental health. It's, it's a real, real serious problem and one that, you know, is all the more obvious right now. That's kind of what happened. It was like, you know, my friend Venmoed me $100 and was like, get a therapist. And Talkspace was there. The reason I did it was because it was like the most accessible way. Prior to this, I would have really looked at telehealth differently. And certainly for myself, I'll be more open to it through the rest of my career, much more open than I would have before. I, re I really do see the value in it to help clients who can't come in uh, normally because of any number of, of reasons. But also for some clients, you really can still be present with each other and, and still really have a therapeutic experience for them. Early on, you know, once it was clear that this was an epidemic here in New York City, the Office of Mental Health, our, our local and, and state and even the federal governing bodies relaxed things about telehealth, even relaxed some of the platforms that we could use in terms of our own personal phones or even services like FaceTime, for example. So I started doing Talkspace and you have the traditional model of a FaceTime, which is like an in-person therapy session, live, she sees you, you see her. I had to get used to text therapy. I had to get used to the process of leaving voice notes for someone and them getting back to you. But my therapist basically gets back to me when she can and it's between hours and days. The thing about online therapy, it's cool. There's a record 
of everything that you've said and everything that they've said. Sometimes I go back and read it and it's really interesting and I can learn a lot. When you have an online therapy space, you're learning sort of a whole new way to do therapy. And I'm still learning, you know, drop calls obviously suck when you're just talking to anyone, but in the therapy session, it can be even more disruptive. And for many people, there's a certain level of anxiety then. Other clients who maybe are particularly anxious or uh, paranoid or delusional, there's also always the concern that someone may be listening in on the phone. Some of my clients do not have a smartphone so they can't use video or may not have a laptop, but others do and just prefer to talk over the phone for that reason, that they find uh, the video element to just be too anxiety provoking or, or too self-conscious or triggering in other ways. Though some very much prefer video, many of them have expressed a preference just to do a phone call, even though they feel comfortable with technology, they just prefer the phone. I know people who have had negative experiences with Talkspace, the good thing about it is that you can pick up your phone and you can start therapy that day if you want. And you also fill out kind of a questionnaire about who you are, what your problems are. And then the app pairs you with people that they think are a good match for you. My first experience with a therapist was okay, not great. And eventually I just realized that, well, it's not the right person. And what ended up happening to me on my journey was... The second therapist I had on Talkspace has ended up being someone who I honestly feel like she changed my life. I started before COVID, and then when it happened, I was just like, thank God I already have this set up. My sessions have changed drastically, which I have to assume is true for almost every therapist. Several of the other therapists were laid off, so we are seeing an increase in caseload. The vast majority of what we're talking about is COVID-19 related. That could be that the person themselves has it and has maybe the need to go to the hospital, or maybe they've gotten out of the hospital and we're talking about how to quarantine, how to take care. Could be that they've known people who have died and are grieving and are struggling because they can't grieve in the way they normally would. It's about the quarantining as well, or it could be about the other kinds of grief, you know, really grieving the loss of what their life was uh, for clients who maybe had finally made a lot of progress and had developed a routine and a life and a social circle and a job and to have lost all of that now is really difficult for other clients, you know, who normally attend day programs, the loss of their main source of social interaction. I would say in one way or another, the theme is grief. I remember there was one week where everything in my life got canceled. Every job, every potential job, and I had kind of been cleaning up my life financially. And I was on the precipice of a lot of stuff when it happened. So it was very destabilizing. And, you know, being in New York, it, it's also just very scary. And there's a lot of things that can cause mental health issues. With that combination of financial issues, collective grief, personal grief, I think being self-employed in some ways you're used to it, but at the same time, you're made more vulnerable because we don't have the infrastructure of a corporation that we work for full time. We kind of all sometimes have this attitude where we're all New Yorkers, but really the reality is we don't really live that way. I mean, people have very different situations. There are people that are like, I can't stay in my apartment. You know, there are people who are 
literally like I have a kid I can't put food on the table and there are people who are like you know I have this amazing situation and yet I have panic attacks I really got worried about myself because a lot of the things that I had been experiencing when I was in a less stable state came back my you know my rituals my self-care was not working all of us are living with this great source of uncertainty and this great source of stress and certainly that comes up a lot it's often been said that for human beings suffering is much easier to tolerate when you know it has an end date you know that feeling of like oh my god my anxiety's back and it's really bad my insomnia's back my feelings of powerlessness are back my sense of panic is back i thought i was done with this and it's like no it's a daily thing In the field of trauma that's emerging, you know, more and more we're seeing that though the traumatic event itself has a level of trauma, what often causes it to continue to be traumatic isn't the event itself, but what happened after. The additional challenges and stress that the situation heaps onto you is so considerable that I immediately started tapping into everything that I had been working on with my therapist for like almost a year because she had been slowly teaching me about mindfulness, about finding practices and resources within myself to deal with things. And I was already used to texting her, leaving her voice notes, and having a FaceTime with her once a month. If the person was given what they needed in the moment after, if they were provided with support and validated, then it's much less likely that that will continue to be an issue for them throughout the rest of their life. and. That is another thing that's happening right now that comes up in our sessions. People going through this traumatic event right now, going through these different kinds of losses and, and uncertainties and being triggered in these different ways, and knowing that our government is not getting us what we need. And there is, of course, a fear amongst many of our clients and many people here in New York City of police brutality. Then on the other side, there is the fear of police officers as well, about not being provided with the things that they need. Those are all things that come up and may have come up before, but the focus has changed to how those issues relate to COVID-19 or just to COVID-19 itself. I really feel like people need help, no matter what your situation is. Who wouldn't need support at this time? My therapist shared this with me. She was like, listen, normally I meditate or pray or do stuff like that for, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Since this has happened, for me to be able to be calm enough to do my job, I spend at least three hours on that every single day. We are facing our own challenges and that is where uh, it is important and this is something that social workers in particular, I think we struggle with sometimes, is to practice what we preach, which is the importance of taking self-care. And that just helped me so much that she shared that about herself with me because I was like, oh, I have to take all of these practices that I've been developing and up my self-care to a level that to me feels ridiculous. In one way or another, this is work that we felt called to do, that we find purpose and meaning in and practicing gratitude to have a job, to be able to have the technology and to work at a nonprofit that helps connect my clients to telehealth services. Gratitude is a, is a really important practice. And it's a little bit vulnerable to admit that I'm, you know, like furiously making lists of like self-care. But the truth is, it works. I have great days now. I mean, I have wonderful days and I have 
dark days and it's it's just very very up and down i still have days where i feel like i'm free falling and that that sense of grounding can just disappear in this situation and environment and now when it disappears i just go right to one of my practices or I'll write to my therapist. If you feel like it, you can just literally pick up your phone, press record, <laughs> and be like, I'm free falling today. And this is what's going on. I think the thing to remember right now is that things change. Sometimes they change for the worse, sometimes they change for the better, but they do change. So I look forward to the next change and I hope it's for the better. It seems like it might be for the worse, and I hope that people come together. I hope that mental health isn't looked at as an individual issue, but rather as a collective issue. And I also hope, you know, someday the Knicks win a championship, but I don't really expect that to happen in my life. But there are things I hope for. New York ranks highly on the Crisis Text Line's list of United States that experience anxiety and stress, and has seen about a 50% increase in message volume since the outbreak started. And of the words that show up in texts about isolation, they've most commonly come across people, friends, better, always, everything, still, someone, need. If you're in need or in crisis, you can connect with one of their counselors by texting HOME to 741-741. My name is Ormaz Sharif and I'm recording this from New York City. The Iran-Iraq war started before I was born, but my earliest memory should be around when I was three or four years when Iraq attacked Tehran, my hometown. This quarantine doesn't directly remind me from the war time, but the first time I made association was when I was shopping at Costco and there was a limitation per household to buy items. Um, and that threw me back to to the war time when each family had something called coupon, coupon, um, and that was basically, you could get like bag of rice or um, a bottle of oil um, um, per family. And obviously you had to stand uh, on a long line to get those um, items. On the other hand, I see uh, parents, especially moms, um, I read on uh, social media and I talk to my friends that their mothers um, reacted to, um, to this um, shutdown and connected to the wartime uh, the way that, um, in a way that they basically stretched the time of use of like each shopping for example with the mentality of the war time they basically try to use items and survive on items more and longer and thus go to shopping less during the war um, I remember religious stress we would basically be 
um, in the hallway of our building, sleeping there, living there. It was a three-unit uh, building, and we were on the third floor, and uh, basically neighbors would sleep on the hallway in case if um, a new bomb is approaching and there was a siren going on, we would have enough time to, to get out of the building. That was sheer stress and um, the entire ordeal of it. Now I don't feel a stress. I'm in my home. Uh, um, it is tough. It is very difficult, but it's not um, stressful. But the isolation of it, not seeing people, not being able to do things, life being at pause, uh, it's very much like that time. Your life goes on pause until next time. You don't see other people because you all the time have to be at back in the war. You had to be um, alert. So you didn't have motivation to basically socialize in a uh, normal sense. Uh, now we don't need to be well kind of yeah now I'm also alert I don't talk to people I try to avoid people uh, so the isolation of it the uh, the sense of life being on pause it does remind me of that time are there enough ventilators in this country are there gonna be people in this country who don't get a ventilator if they need one who gets life-saving equipment and who doesn't if it comes to that what am I going to what am I going to do with 400 ventilators when I need 30,000 the potential shortage of ventilators during the coronavirus pandemic is raising difficult questions about who will be excluded from potentially life-saving treatment when there aren't enough resources to go around here in New York the state hit hardest by the pandemic. Disabled people are being left behind in plans for emergency resource allocation. The state has in effect said, well, we think your death is inevitable. And so we're going to look away. And I very fundamentally disagree. I'm Susan Dua. I'm calling from my living room in Brooklyn, which has become my war room for work and for fighting for fair policies for people and care. I'm executive director at the Center for Independence of the Disabled New York, Sydney. What we do at Sydney through our work is we help people with disabilities gain skills and knowledge about their civil rights so that they themselves can become advocates. I'm very worried about the state and city's allocation of resources in this pandemic. I see any number of things that are very alarming to me and that signal discrimination. The places where people with disabilities live in congregate settings are not a priority for protective equipment or additional resources and are drastically understaffed and lack infection control. Everything from nursing facilities to adult homes to group homes to homeless shelters and jails. No one is counting the rate at which people with disabilities in any setting are becoming infected and are dying. If you don't count it, it didn't happen. 
My name is Allison Barkoff, and I'm the Director of Advocacy at the Center for Public Representation. We do legal and policy advocacy work to make sure that people with disabilities don't face discrimination, whether it's in medical care or being able to work and fully participate in their communities. There were a lot of concerns in New York around disability issues, but the biggest one that bubbled up about the crisis standards of care was a provision in there that allowed for reallocation of ventilators. And we heard extreme concern from people who live in the community, who have very rich and fulfilling lives, but happen to use ventilators in their daily life. And they were thinking, if I get sick, I'm really worried about going to a hospital because someone might take my ventilator away and decide I'm not worthy. New York State's 2015 ventilator allocation guidelines have been interpreted as saying that in the event of a shortage, ventilator users, upon seeking treatment in a hospital, could have their ventilators taken and reallocated. This violent medical ableism isn't a new feature of the pandemic. People with disabilities and people who are Black and Latinx and Asian American have often faced discrimination in the healthcare system. As we started looking at some of the things that concerned people with disabilities, there were many of the same concerns that um, communities of color had. And a good example is state plans that deprioritized people based on having certain comorbidities. So you were less likely to be prioritized to get a ventilator if you had diabetes, if you had lung disease, if you had a number of different conditions, which all of those people by definition are people with disabilities. But when you look at historically marginalized communities who have historically had less access to healthcare, we know that many of these comorbidities are much higher in those communities. There's a long history of discrimination against people with disabilities by the healthcare system, starting from literally decisions in the Supreme Court that people with disabilities and particularly intellectual disabilities could be forced to have sterilization and, and not have children. In the 1927 case, Buck versus Bell, the court upheld a statute that enabled the state of Virginia to sterilize so-called mental defectives or imbeciles. To more recent cases of discrimination in organ transplants and hospitals having policies that flat out excluded people with certain disabilities. There is no law in Georgia that protects patients with disabilities from being taken off an organ donor list because of their disability. Only 12 states in the country offer this kind of protection. Georgia would be the 13th. Discrimination has included forced sterilization, experimentation for people with disabilities. It can be euthanasia. It can be that the health facilities themselves are not accessible. No one asks you if you may need someone to communicate on your behalf because of your communication-related disability. No one asks if you simply need more time to communicate, if you need your service animal with you. No one asks if you have a cognitive disability and difficulty understanding things 
and need them explained in plain language. Or maybe you need materials in alternate formats because you have little vision or you're blind and you need very, very large print or you might need braille. And this is even more of a problem for people who are black, for people of color who face discrimination that is similar in the health system. There are a lot of forms of discrimination that need to be eradicated. These examples of medical discrimination reflect the influence of the eugenics movement. Throughout the beginning of the 20th century, the eugenics movement targeted disabled people and other groups considered inferior, undesirable, or dangerous. Medical and diagnostic labels were applied to many marginalized groups and used to justify discrimination. Eugenics carried out a system of organization, of evaluating human beings based on what were understood as biological and genetic criteria, a system of differential valuing of human beings. I'm Rosemarie Garland Thompson. I am a professor of English and bioethics at Emory University. I have had the opportunity during my career, really over the last 20 years, to develop or help develop the field of critical disability studies. What is the bearing of the laws of heredity upon human affairs? Eugenics provides the answer. Medicine offered an enormous vocabulary of diagnostic categories of biological inferiority that the Nazis could use. People with disabilities in the very broadest sense were a very easy target. In the extraordinary medical rationing program that was what we think of now as the Holocaust. In the United States, of course, there was a long history of scientific and medical enterprises which did not use human subjects in a ethical way. Perhaps the most uh, significant of these is the uh, Tuskegee syphilis experiment. The Tuskegee syphilis study was a study financed by the federal government. According to them, uh, it was for the purpose of studying untreated syphilis in the Negro male. They selected a group of men, all African-Americans, all rural with very little education. They told them that it was a health program. These men, they were never told that they had a deadly disease. They were never told that this really was an experiment. They were never told that they were not in fact being treated. And even when penicillin became available in the 40s, they still didn't treat them. And many of these men died. We already started from a framework where people with disabilities have a tense relationship in many cases with the healthcare system. So as we saw COVID really starting to hit the shores of the United States in, in early March, disability advocates really started ringing the alarm bells. We were watching in Europe as 
rationing of life-saving treatment and particularly ventilators um, was occurring in a way that really was antithetical to the civil rights laws that exist in the United States. People being completely discriminated against and deprioritized based on disability, based on age, and we were incredibly concerned that would happen here in the United States. States started thinking about emergency planning and how decisions would be made if care had to be rationed. Some states had already created policies. And when disability advocates started looking at those policies, we found really incredible um, ableist and, and really facially discriminatory pieces in there. Rationing guidelines exist in 25 states in the nation. The types of things that we saw across the country were things like what we would call categorical exclusion. So saying you absolutely cannot even be in the line at all if you have certain disabilities. There are some particularly horrendous examples in Alabama, in Tennessee, in Washington state. Alabama, for example, had an old state guideline that named categories of people that would be prevented from getting scarce medical resources such as ventilators. In Alabama, for example, if you had a significant intellectual disability, although that's not the word that they used, or if you had significant dementia, you were not even eligible. There are policies that say that people with severe mental retardation, first of all, the concept itself is wrong. Maybe poor candidates for ventilators if they become very, very seriously ill. In states like Tennessee and Kansas. In Kansas and Tennessee. We saw that if you had certain neuromuscular disabilities. People with advanced neuromuscular disease. You were completely excluded from receiving critical care. Maybe never even get to the ICU. What's different about this pandemic is that the fullness of the disability rights movement and what it has brought in terms of changes to not just how we understand ourselves, but the world that we live in and the way it's built has changed tremendously in the last 30 years since the Americans with Disabilities Act and other acts around the whole world have come into play. Civil rights were standing, knocking at our door. And Reagan, you know he won't stand for 504. We gotta keep our eye on that prize. All right, this is the last time, hold on. Over 150 people with disabilities and our supporters marched out of this building after occupying it for 26 days and celebrated our victory enforcing the government to finally issue strong regulations to implement Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. I mean, a bunch of cripples took over a federal government building. We did it. We did it by ourselves. We did it with love. We will continue to fight for the implementation. We will not stop. There are several disability rights laws that prohibit discrimination against people with disabilities. 
the Americans with Disabilities Act, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. These are all federal civil rights laws that prohibit discrimination based on disability. And that includes making decisions that are based on stereotypes about people with disabilities and their worth or quality of life judgments. And many of these policies are really rooted in that. Disabled activists across the country, along with groups like Sydney and the Center for Public Representation, have been forming coalitions, organizing campaigns, and taking legal action to protect their civil rights. As a result of these organizing efforts, Alabama withdrew its guidelines excluding certain disabled people from accessing ventilators, and Pennsylvania issued updated healthcare triage guidelines prohibiting discrimination on the basis of disability. Literally, our lives are on the line right now, and we don't have the luxury of just sitting back. Um, so the activism in, in the disability community has been incredible. It's important for everyone to care. It is important that civil rights laws be enforced for all of us. I think uh, we can all agree that we are all in danger when people's civil rights begin to slip away. Disability is a way of being in the world and it's a category of being that all of us will enter into if we live long enough. This pandemic is an opportunity to practice world building that is inclusive and humane. It's an opportunity for us to think through really clearly what equality might mean, what justice might mean. So what would health equity look like? Health equity would include asking people about the reasonable accommodations they need because of their disabilities in order to have equal access to health care. We need a bias-free healthcare zone where health practitioners are taught to explore and expose their own biases and are taught to treat people with disabilities, people who are black, people of color, as individuals and that our lives are not less valuable. I cannot begin to tell you how many people with no disability imagine that those of us who have disabilities have a terrible quality of life, that our lives are not worth living, we'd rather not have them, um, and they don't know how much fun we're having. Hi, my name is Stefan Christoph here in Montreal, and I'm contributing this segment to the Brooklyn USA podcast. Um, I host a program called Free City Radio, which broadcasts on CKUT 
radio at 90.3 FM in Montreal, and we also podcast. Uh, I spoke with Mustafa Hanawe, who is a community organizer at the Immigrant Workers Centre here in Montreal. And they do a lot of work um, to support the rights of both immigrant workers and particularly non-status workers. Mustafa and the Immigrant Workers Centre has been working hard to bring attention to the conditions faced by uh, immigrant workers within distribution uh, centres, so sort of where uh, goods are distributed for sh shops like the Quebec version, the Canadian version of the dollar shop, which is called Dollarama. So uh, I thought it was interesting to highlight um, this voice uh, here from Montreal to you in Brooklyn uh, for the Brooklyn USA podcast. So here's our conversation. Take it easy. Hey, Mustafa, could you talk about the issues that you were bringing up and maybe the conditions you were addressing through the Immigrant Workers Centre? So the issues that, that these workers face, just to give a little context, so Dollarama is multinational corporation. Uh, it operates now in Latin America. It has part ownership by Bain Capital, which is uh, Mitt Romney's hedge fund. Uh, and it's a corporation that employs around 20,000 workers. And most of its operations in terms of its warehousing and distribution is similar to that of, uh, let's say, Amazon or of Walmart. Right, so this very hyper neoliberal uh, version of just-in-time distribution of goods, right? So uh, that means that a lot of these workers are temp workers uh, in the distribution center. Almost 90% of them are. It is uh, low wages, precarious. So meaning that uh, to be able to fulfill that, most of these workers are racialized. They're Haitian. Uh, West African and uh, you know living and working uh, under the most uh, harsh conditions without uh, basic health and safety equipment uh, they're non-unionized they don't have uh, access to their basic rights uh, because they're temp workers a lot of the time uh, they live in fear because they don't know if they're gonna have the job the next day so those were the conditions sort of prior to the pandemic and what happened during the pandemic as what we saw in in Amazon mm -hmm. uh, and other large workplaces that became sites of outbreaks uh, as Dollarama in Quebec was declared uh, an essential service uh, because it does sell uh, food items and as a result, when you have a thousand people in a badly organized workplace, uh, an employer that refuses to respect people's health and safety rights prior to the pandemic only becomes exasperated during the pandemic. And what we were fighting around and what workers were organizing around was essentially the right to not get sick, essentially the right to be able to live. And um, Unfortunately, a lot of these workers knew that this was going to happen and that workers were going to test positive. These are large workplaces where the turnover is like 20 people a day, new workers, because the conditions are so bad. They weren't given proper health and safety equipment. Uh, they were not given masks or gloves. Uh, the equipment wasn't sanitized. 
Dollarama kept a policy of secrecy in terms of people who have tested positive. So workers on the site didn't even know if other workers had had it. Uh, they just know that workers were calling in sick, were not showing up, and many felt there was a racialized aspect to it, that many of the white Quebecois workers were staying at home, while many of the immigrant workers, uh, uh, who are mostly black, were still going into work. And so the Immigrant Workers Center, we've been working with these workers for a number of years, but uh, the urgency came up during the pandemic because we knew there was going to be an outbreak. And we saw what happened in Amazon, uh, where a number of warehouses uh, and fulfillment centers, people had tested positive. And we were beginning to see the same thing, right? And and so uh, the Immigrant Workers Center, we worked with workers and organizers to actually to go out and flyer uh, the workplace. Uh, and then we had workers call in to the Labor Standards Commission and also to the Department of Public Health. Here in Quebec. Here in Quebec. Yeah. Uh, to demand changes. Unfortunately, the minimum um, uh, is actually really below maybe what workers would feel safe. So we said we're still going to fight and push around. Uh, we had workers speak up and organize a press conference. Uh, where workers explained the horrible work conditions that they were facing, that they weren't being able to work two meters apart. Uh, that when cleaners were called in sick, there was no replacement. Uh, there was no extra washing stations. Uh, there was no sanitization between shifts of the equipment. Um, and no uh, gloves or masks. And through the pressure, we saw slowly beginning to change. So as of a week ago or two weeks ago, uh, Dollarama began providing uh, masks to all its workers and extra sanitization and d disinfection of the equipment, uh, especially because these workplaces, these warehouses are giant rooms with no ventilation uh, where hundreds of people are just passing each other uh, eight hours a day. Uh, and so many of the workers are still complaining that it doesn't go far enough. So that's one of the things we're beginning to work on is that to give a lot of these workers the right to stay home uh, and also to either declare it as a non-essential service or uh, to reduce the number of workers to make sure that it that it's safe. But ultimately, it goes down to other issues as well, where uh, if workers don't feel that they have a permanent job, we know this is the case with two workers where someone had tested positive, but they had showed up to work because they were afraid they were going to lose their job if they just stayed at home. So that's kind of fear that workers are living in. Hmm. So th those are like the, the major issues that we're, we're fighting around uh, still to this, to this moment with workers and improving the, the conditions also in the different stores itself. The Home Depot is committed to the safety of its customers and associates, and we're committed to staying open and providing essential tools and supplies to all who need them. As we work to keep our stores clean and sanitized, help us protect each other by practicing social distancing while shopping. Stay at least six feet apart from others, clean your hands often, and when you cough or sneeze, cover your nose and mouth with a tissue or use the inside of your elbow.
I pick some more uh, wild onions and I'm planning to make a nice stir fry or oh. something with them. Everything. Where'd you go? Uh, these are from Fort Green Park. I'm going to show them to you. I'm pretty proud. Charlie has gone like full nature boy. And, and <laughs> yeah, so here for it. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Those are like professional. What? Professional <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm growing This came from the park? From Fort Green Park? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> That's from Fort Green Park. That's crazy. Uh, so, like, I've kind of been into this, you know, since March. In March, they were a lot smaller, and they're just getting bigger and bigger. Hey, which part in Fort Park? It's actually, yeah. it was this, um, along Myrtle Avenue, next to the playground, and up by the hill on that north side. So, it's kind of, like, right by there. There's this little corner of the park that's, like, completely undisturbed and the wild onions can can grow too amazing so, that's, that's just amazing is this sorry i'm really out of my depth here is this like this just happens in nature or at some point somebody like left an onion there and then this happened or like how does that no no they're they're wild yeah it's like a wild species that's amazing wow so yeah i've got a good eye for it now and then like you know once you get it the really big ones, you kind of, I I have to find like a hard stick or something to dig with. I actually have to like dig around it to be able to pull it out without just like the stalk popping off. Hmm. That's crazy. So. Has, um, I have so many follow-up questions. One, has anyone seen you doing this and been like, what is <laughs> well, like, yeah, this, this spot, it's like right by the jogging path. So definitely people were. Yeah. Dogging on by, and I'm just there and harvesting vegetables next to the path. And uh, sometimes people, because I've done this quite a few times by now, a couple times people have asked me what I'm harvesting, and I tell them that is amazing. Um, will you please, if you have the bandwidth to record one of those conversations, please, oh, yeah, <laughs> next yeah. time somebody stops you, that would be so I'll just amazing. have the recorder going, yeah. Yeah. Since the beginning of human existence, people look for ways to understand and connect to things around them. Greetings to all. My name is Chief Ayanda Ifadara Clark. I'm a man of African descent born in America who is a spiritual healer, leader and counselor, a musician and an educator. Brooklyn-born New Yorker raised by parents who anchored me in African philosophy and cultural values from the day I was born. My birth name, Ayanda, 
means born from the spirit of the drum in the Yoruba language of Nigeria. My amazing mother, Iyanifa Patricia Jokotifa Obayanu Clark, and my father, the great percussionist, Chief Babanil Tokode Clark, welcomed me into the world while drums were playing in the next room. I've never been on this earth without knowing the sound of African drums, and likewise, I've always had the wind of African cultural heritage beneath my wings. This would play out many, many years later when my mentor, Chief Agbongbong Fakayo de Faniyi, sponsored my installation as a chief in Oshogbo, Nigeria. The Council of Elders and High Priests honored me with the title Ajibilu Awo of Oshogbo. I am a Babalawo, an initiate, practitioner, and adherent to Ifa. Ifa can be described as the divine spiritual wisdom of the universe, as understood by the Yoruba people of West Africa. Ifa is not the wisdom that belongs to one person. It is not the wisdom that can be gathered even in one lifetime. Ifa is the wisdom that has been passed down from generation to generation and is the basis of traditional Yoruba philosophy and spirituality. In this way, Ifa is not a religion. Ifa is less about worship than it is about practicing a way of life in which we utilize divine wisdom to gain understanding. That understanding helps us to make decisions in our lives that maintain overall balance. As human beings, we have to interact with other people, with the environment around us, with the birds, the trees, the animals, with the water and the air, the soil. We're all supported by and sometimes find ourselves at the mercy of nature. In that way, there's an ever-present interconnectedness. Yoruba philosophy acknowledges these spiritual and physical connections, the tangible and intangible ways in which we're all connected and intertwined. Ifa is the traditional way Yoruba philosophy and spirituality was maintained and passed on. In my work as a musician, a business owner, and as a spiritual counselor, I celebrate the philosophy of African culture. It's true that African people, like other people around the globe, are communal people. So it's important to be good citizens of the world, to do good in the world, to put forth positive energy and make positive contributions. This is a founding principle of the Fadara group. As we intertwine music, culture, and spirituality, we maintain focus on making positive contributions. We're speaking now in a time of global pandemic, a time of crisis. These are times when people are reminded that we don't have all the answers, a time when we realize that we are not in control. When such reminders occur, we often seek out those answers and cling to that which can provide some sense of stability. So given the current global situation, it's not surprising that people turn to their faith and turn to spirituality to provide that stability and to provide those kinds of answers. 
what we know is that spirit is present at all times. That divine creative energy, in whatever name we choose to acknowledge it, exists always. Spirit is ever present. And since spirit is ever present, one's spiritual self and one's spirituality cannot be turned on and off. Instead, it's the decision of the individual to either recognize and connect to spirit or to ignore and disconnect from their spiritual self. We advocate for people to connect mind, body, and spirit to promote and maintain their health and wellness. In this way, the Fadara group is relying on our IWA initiative. IWA stands for Integrated Wealth Alliance. IWA is a collective of healers and health and wellness professionals who understand the value in promoting holistic health and wellness. These professionals comprise a network of doctors in Western and Eastern medicine, herbalists, acupuncturists, psychologists, spiritual health counselors, business advisors, and coaches, all providing guidance and assistance to our community in need. IWA is redefining wealth in the ways that people say health is wealth. I share with my students that if we lean too far to the left or too far to the right, we may find ourselves off balance. But the idea of too far in any given situation is subjective. Too far has to be determined by the circumstances. That means that there's no predetermined way to handle an issue. There's no cookie cutter approach to navigating our way through life. So we work to avail ourselves of the understanding necessary to find the balance. One of the ways we do this is through internal self-reflection or meditation in which we bring about internal peace, harnessing the divine energy from within. And another is through prayer. Our words have power. We call that power Ashe. Prayer is spiritual medicine, spiritual vitamins, spiritual nourishment. this time, I'd like to offer a prayer of well-being. We're each having unique experiences as we collectively navigate these times. Our experience may be different from our neighbors, but we know that we are not alone in facing this challenge. Whether we've lost a loved one or are battling physical illness ourselves, whether we're at home tending to our loved ones or feeling alone and isolated, whether we're navigating new working conditions or are unsure of how we'll be able to provide for our families. This prayer I offer is for life to be sweet, for bitterness to be eradicated, for sadness to subside, for fear to be vanquished, for joy to return, for comfort to be experienced, for happiness and love to reign supreme, I pray that life for each of us will be flavorful and pleasing. I pray in the Yoruba language and seek the support of all positive promoters of light. 
Eriwoya, Eriwoya, Eriwoya. Ayoyogo, Ayoyogo, Ayoyogo ma goma. Adifa fun rumila, Baba loremu iyoyora, Awa atamo, iyoyora, Oru ayo niko mumbawa, Oru banuje kanki bayo. Elaboru, elaboye, elabosise, ogbo ato, asure, iwori wofun. I am Chief Ayanda Ifadara Clark. And on behalf of the Fadara Group, the Integrated Wealth Alliance, and Ile Oturupon Sokun, we wish you well. We can weather with Griffin. We can weather with Griffin. Hey everyone, it's Genie Meteorologist Griff City talking about the weekend weather. Your city, Brooklyn, USA. Friday, high 55, low 37. It will be rainy. Saturday, high 48, low 39. It will be partly cloudy. Sunday, high 57, low 46. It will be partly cloudy. Weekly fun fact. Did you know that New Yorkers speak approximately 800 languages? Thank you for listening, Brooklyn. Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias. And me, Emily Bogosian. And me, Shirin Barri. And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Carol Palmer. And me, Ross Tuttle. And me, Mayumi Sato. With help this week from Justin Bryant, Taylor Cook, Brick Radio Junior Meteorologist Griff City, Lauren Germain, and Stefan Kristoff. Thank you to Ariana Ayman, Alice Wong, and to the Disability Rights and Education Defense Fund for allowing us to use clips from their 1997 audio documentary, We Shall Not Be Moved. If you want to send us a message, check the show notes for a link to our handy guide on how. If you'd rather reach out the old-fashioned way, you can always call us at 917-719-0021 and tell us your name, where you're calling from, how to reach you, and anything else you want to get off your chest. We're here when you need us, and we can't wait to hear from you. If you like what you hear, comment, like, share, and subscribe, and follow at BrickTV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. And while you're there, follow at BrickBrooklyn for updates on all the arts, music, and cultural programming we're beaming right into your living room on Brick by Home. And if you want to brush up on your beaming skills, check the show notes for a link to Brick's online media education portal. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org radio.
I want to say that this podcast is dope. Long-time listener, first-time caller. It, it usually runs a nicer thread between serious and not serious, but these are serious times. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I want to shout out Brick for this podcast and also for Celebrate Brooklyn. I am bummed that Celebrate Brooklyn will not be happening. I am grieving that loss, but I know it will return uh, someday, and I look forward to that day, wherever it may be. The phone is propped up on a double pack of paper towels.